My name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Frank Tashlin. That's right. And for this episode, we are not saying Chaplin esque, we are saying Tashlin esque. And what does that entail? Colorful, probably in cinemascope, rapid fire gags, perhaps even a little bit of social deconstructive satire. So Frank Tashlin is a name that is really only known by hardened cinephiles, but to hardened cinephiles, he represents an entire ethos, an entire style, an entire worldview. He is a director that was very much taken by the French critics that were popping up around the new wave as kind of a symbol for the auteur, especially when it came to something as disreputable as a comedy. That's right. In the 1950s and 1960s, those same French critics who venerated directors like Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, Howard Hawks, you've probably heard of those people, but you may not have heard of Frank Tashlin because they venerated him and he is a cult figure kind of within a cult. And what's interesting about him is he doesn't really have any breakout in this modern age comedy. Like, no one's like, ah, yes, the girl can't help it. Every mom and dad knows that movie. Although it's coming to the Criterion Collection this week, Which feels very late. You would think that would be one that they would have grabbed early on, but I'm glad better late than never. But there are a number of reasons why he's one of the lesser known of those French auteur guys. Uh, One is because his career was spent mostly directing comedies that were defined by the star comedians. Ah, yes, everybody loves Danny Kaye. (laughs) Well, Danny Kaye, but he's most known, probably still best known for having been the director who taught Jerry Lewis everything he knew. And some would say that a lot of Jerry Lewis's style was kind of transmutated through what he learned through Frank Tashlin. Yeah, well, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Uh, We said we wouldn't talk about any Jerry Lewis movies on this podcast. We were going to have to. But we didn't watch any for this podcast. That's right. So, yeah, he directed the two best Martin and Lewis movies, Artists and Models and Hollywood or Bust. He also directed a number of Jerry's solo movies like (laughs) The Disorderly Orderly. And who can forget Geisha Boy? The Geisha Boy. That's right. And Cinderfella. Who's minding the store? And then beyond that, I mean, it's a it's a tricky filmography to navigate because Tashlin was not recognized by the studios who employed him as a great artist. No, he was a journeyman. He He was like, oh, we can get. Tashlin to come in and do this comedy vehicle, like we mentioned, for this star. Yeah, and the stars that he worked with, in addition to Jerry Lewis, it was Jane Mansfield, it was Bob Hope, it was people who were lowbrow, I guess it's fair to say, certainly populist, certainly commercial. And if you're wondering, wait, Frank Tashlin, haven't they done an episode on him before? Well, that would be because we talked about him when we discussed the Looney Tunes, because Frank Tashlin, he wasn't one of the top Looney Tunes directors, having directed only two Bugs Bunny shorts, one of them being the last short he made for Warner Brothers. He was mostly a auxiliary player kind of guy and also a porky pig guy. That's right. He did the swooner crooner, among other uh, classic cartoons. And usually when people talk about Frank Tashlin as a director of animation, they discuss how he brought a kind of cinematic style that he would use low angles or camera moves to accentuate a gag. And then when he started directing live action comedies, he would bring a lot of cartoon style to them. He would do outrageous gags. You know, no gag was too ridiculous. So having said all that, having said all the reasons why his filmography is tricky to navigate, uh, here is what Jean-Luc Godard in 1957 wrote about Hollywood or Bust. He wrote, according to Georges Sadoul, I guess that's a, another film critic, yeah. 
Frank Tashlin is a second-rank director because he has never done a remake of You Can't Take It With You or The Awful Truth. According to me, my colleague errs in mistaking a closed door for an open one. In 15 years' time, people will realize that The Girl Can't Help But served then, that is today, as a fountain of youth from which the cinema now, that is the future, has drawn fresh inspiration. And then uh, the essay ends with Godard writing, to sum up, Frank Tashlin has not renovated the Hollywood comedy. He has done better. There is not a difference in degree between Hollywood or Bust and It Happened One Night, between The Girl Can't Help It and Design for Living, but a difference in kind. Tashlin, in other words, has not renewed but created. And henceforth, when you talk about comedy, don't say it's Chaplin-esque. Say loud and clear, it's Tashlin-esque. Which people have been doing <laughs> since this uh, review came out, right, Will? I, I love this about Jean-Luc Godard's film criticism. I, you know, every every six months I pull Godard on Godard off the shelf and I'm like, I'm going to love this book this time. And with Godard, it's like a guy throwing a lot of stuff on the wall. And like there are lines, individual lines, individual ideas that are great and eternal and continue to. Yeah, he's Justin's doing the motion of a stopped clock. That's right. Twice a day. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. All those all those guys, especially Godard, it's like they had individual lines that are eternal. And then a lot of Godard really um, hedges his bets by giving the opposite of things like within the same sentence. I think Godard on Godard is one of the only books where it is packed with footnotes and some of the footnotes is the editor going, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? He's right there in the sense that The Girl Can't Help It is held today as one of the great comedies of its time. And when you think of the other studio directors making co comedies when Tashlin was doing it, it's like Norman Turog who did the other Jerry Lewis movies. Or George Marshall. No, I mean, Frank Tashlin is wonderful partly because he still carries this air of disrepute. He still seems, there still seems something just a little bit lowbrow and a little bit unreclaimable about him. And that is the core to his genius because he is, you know, you mentioned earlier, a social satirist. He's somebody who not merely satirized the vulgarity of American culture in the 1950s, but he, he celebrated it. And I was very happy to see that he was a guy that kind of stumbled into animation, became very popular because he could do it very quickly and was fired or left almost every job that he had because he got in fights with his bosses that he could not stay at any place to the point that like animators would say stuff like here today gone tomorrow now you see him now you don't that was Frank Tashlin who would be working at Leon Schlesinger's one day and suddenly gone the next day and I think you get that feeling in his movies and that he was someone that was very individualistic even though that he worked in this studio system he did a bunch of kids books uh, including a famous one one called The Bear Who Wasn't in 1946. Are you familiar with that one? I am not, no. The story is about a bear who wakes up one day after hibernating to discover that he is in a city. He finds himself in a factory where the boss goes, hey, you should be on the factory floor. And the bear says, no, I'm a bear. I'm not supposed to work. And the boss says, all right, I'm going to take you to my manager and we're going to tell you that you're, a, you're supposed to be a worker. And the book is a series of like escalating gags where they get to the bigger and bigger and bigger boss until the bear is hammered so much should be a worker and that he should just you know shave and wear a coat that he goes hey, I guess I'm a worker and then he works until winter comes where he gets fired has to leave the factory and goes oh boy I wish I was a bear and then he realizes 
oh, I am a bear, but because society has been trying to push into me for so long that I'm not and I should be something else, it, you know, it takes a lot of time for me to realize the middle ground of where I'd be happy. And that's kind of like where Frank Tashlin was working within the studio system. Yeah, and you can see a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of that same ethos in a movie like Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, and it's its vision of uh, a man working within a system. Yeah, I mean, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, watching it this time, I found it less acidic than I remember it being, mm-hmm. that it's fairly kind of tame in the story of, I mean, it's funny that a lot of Frank Tashlin's like bigger films all star kind of like wrinkly <laughs> older leading men <laughs> especially when you put them up against like jane mansfield well yeah they're kind of wimpy guys and <laughs> she's this you know just, just fabulous bombshell yeah will's just, trying to find a, a polite way to say it it's like imagine the cartoon version of marilyn monroe mm-hmm. anyway will success spoil rock hunter let's talk about this one because not his first movie not his last movie but this is probably this is probably the one that is the classic this mm. is the one more than any other more than the girl can't help even though that both of them are seemingly the same to the point that uh at the beginning of will success spoil rock hunter i believe the star uh goes oh yeah we're gonna be watching uh the girl can't help no we already did that one we're doing a different one this time so i liked that reference the girl can't help it because it implied that Tashlin was thinking of himself as an auteur. He yes. was thinking of it as like the Frank Tashlin cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this one stars Tony Randall as Rockwell P. Hunter. He's a low-level writer at an advertising agency. Dreams of climbing the corporate ladder. Dreams of the big office at, at, at the corner of the hall. And he has an opportunity to do this because he has a plan when the advertising agency is about to lose its biggest client, which is a brand of lipstick. He he has a scheme to rope in the biggest female star in the world to promote the lipstick. Played by Jane Mansfield, <laughs> the, the most buxom, the most absurdly beautiful movie star to ever live. Very funny in this movie, playing a parody of the blonde bombshell who is aware of what her position is. And everything in this movie is all kind of machinations. Like what you're seeing on the screen has been engineered by the people to be that way in order to probably just get you to buy product. So she agrees to endorse the product. However, Rock Hunter, the Tony Randall character, has to pretend to be her lover so that she can make her her real lover, who's like a a Tarzan type movie star (laughs) or TV star. I mean, uh, Bobo. Yeah. Be be jealous. Or Bozo. One of those ones. Yeah. yeah. And Tony Randall then becomes a superstar overnight. Lover boy. Kevin Federline type (laughs) figure. (laughs) Will success spoil Kevin Federline, the remake that should have happened. So he finds out the fame is a bit of a double edged sword and you know this is it is a gentler satire than perhaps one remembers it Uh, i mean his boss at one point goes you know what i'm really scared of being an imposter because i'm just a junior when nobody in those positions that are managing companies ever think that so it's certainly a movie that looks askance at the corporate power structure of capitalist striving and all that and when rock hunter gets to the top he realizes that this is not what he wants all he wants is to work on a chicken farm but you know it's a movie that's also full of media satire Mm. television in particular the opening credits play to a bunch of commercial parodies halfway through tony randall interrupts the movie you know he comes out of a curtain and he says we don't want to leave our friends the tv fans out so we're gonna have a section of the movie that's for them and then the movie becomes a little black and white (laughs) square yeah he's sticking it to those tv people but i love that and that's the that's kind of like this freewheeling approach to the cinematic form where when we're talking about what jerry lewis took from him jerry lewis took that from him he took 
took that there are no rules. No gag is too big. No facial expression is too big. No no uh, woman is too buxom. No man is too ridiculous. What Jerry Lewis didn't take from him was the social satire. Mm-hmm. Jerry Lewis's movies are much more like... It's about me, Jerry yeah. Lewis. Yeah, it's an insane man in his insane head and his multiple personalities. And also Jerry Lewis wants the audience to like him, whether he is wild or the feel bad for him and something like the nutty professor where he like lays on the sentimentality and in these you know top tier tassin films the sentimentality is very minor in them so we also watched son of Paleface, which is one of his earlier features uh, i think it was his second feature yeah he had written the first uh the pale face the bob hope vehicle and i think he probably got the job because you know he had written for bob hope a lot he wrote for groucho marx who actually shows up at the end of will success spoil rock hunter mm-hmm. and it, it is close Son of Paleface to what you would expect from someone who directed so many Looney Tunes shorts because it is almost hell's a poppin' level in its gag delivery system. Yeah, I really enjoy Son of Paleface. And I'll, by the way, I'll just say the disclaimer that the movie is full of racism as you would expect a Western comedy of its time to be. Jokes about like killing indigenous people. So that's just a little fair warning if you're going to watch it. At least the people who conquered the West, like Bob Hope, is a fool who does not know what he's doing and is terrible. Yes. <laughs> but then and you also have Roy Rogers. <laughs> well, yeah, it's got Roy Rogers, the great singing cowboy star of his era. But the real his star, horse, Trigger. <laughs> Trigger, the smartest horse in movies. I love Trigger in this movie. He's great. There's a scene where Bob Hope is in bed and he keeps pulling the blankets down and Trigger keeps pulling them back up that goes on for like a minute. Now that is the smartest horse in pictures. By <laughs> yeah. the way, there are multiple jokes in the movie about Roy Rogers wanting to fuck Trigger. <laughs> it's great. Frank Tashley knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> and uh, Jane Russell is in it too. The the leading lady uh, they have you know a lot of good moments together they have some good musical numbers this film almost wa- made me want to check out more Bob Hope comedies because I loved his like sniveling pathetic hero character who always has a zinger but is also always the butt of the jokes and I don't know well, I haven't seen his road pictures with Batman Bing Crosby but yeah I haven't I haven't seen them either I mean what I've seen of Bob Hope over the years I haven't really liked very much mm-hmm. but I did like him in this and it goes to show it's there's a difference if somebody actually funny is writing the jokes. And there's a lot of physical gags too. There's one that I really wanted to create as a gif of Bob hoping smash through like seven walls at one point. <laughs> okay. That's comedy. Well, I mean, my favorite gag is when he drinks from that big drink and mm-hmm. then, you know, his head starts spinning around and the, the smoke comes out of his ears. There's like ten gags. The H on his chest goes whoop and like spins up. This is the Tashlin touch, you know. This is all that kooky Looney Tunes stuff that he brought to live action film. It has, has a bit of like proto Kung Fu hustle energy. Oh, Oh, absolutely. Especially a climax that feels like it's out of Fury Road where like a wheel goes off the car, but they keep it up and they have to catch the wheel and bring it back. Yeah, very fun. But that's something that I feel kind of Tashlin took away from his films as he made them, trying to kind of more narrow in on specific gags using the widescreen cinemascope frame in ways that were not as dynamic as they were in Son of Paleface, because as he continued to make movies, he probably felt he had to prove less. Well, The Girl Can't Help It from 1956, which came out the year before Will Success Boyle Rock Hunter, is probably his most, I'd say, visually dazzling movie, Mm -hmm. at least of the ones I've seen. You know, just a retina blasting experience of just 
like bright blue curtains and ruby red dresses and swooning lighting. And it starts right off the bat with a format breaking thing where our host comes out and goes, welcome, you will enjoy this film in beautiful color and cinemascope. And then he like realizes, oh, wait, we're black and white. We're in a box. So he pulls a classic Xavier Delan in Mommy and pushes out the size until they're in widescreen, snaps his finger, everything turns to dazzling cinemascope color. So you can imagine how this movie was probably commissioned. Like this movie is a showcase for this exciting new form from the time called rock, rock and roll. And roll. <laughs> rock the girl and roll. can't help it. The girl can't help it. And I love that the, the theme of the movie is like, look at this loser, this Elvis lookalike. He can't sing or dance, but people love it. So anyone can. I'm like, that's a lesson you got from Elvis. Actually, I did like that because the rest <laughs> of the movie has actual black musicians mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Know? It's like, almost actually going like, look at this pale imitation. Yeah. But then you get to see Little Richard. You get to see the platters. You see Fats Domino, all these people. Yeah, you can imagine this movie being commissioned as basically like an Elvis movie. Mm-hmm. You know, this, it's a showcase for the songs that these kids like. The plot's fun, though, too. It's about a mobster who wants his girlfriend to be a music star. The girlfriend, of course, is played by Jane Mansfield. And when she walks down the street, people's glasses break. <laughs> yeah, and love a, it. There's a milkman who's holding a, a, a little jug of milk and, and the it milk boils. Goes- <laughs> Yeah. Could that be perhaps a, uh, you know, illusion to some other milky white liquid that does something? I can't imagine what you're thinking. <laughs> How of. dare you? The Hays Code will come right down on us. Uh, John Waters is a fan of this movie. And from these scenes, they inspired those scenes in Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble where Divine is walking down the street and everyone's looking at her. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's good. <laughs> anyway, she doesn't want to be a star. She wants to just be a homemaker. She just wants to marry a man. <sighs> I think he's 49 years old and she's 23 in this movie. Uh, yeah, so the le- he looks 75. The leading man, Tom Ewell. I, I I had never seen this movie until this week, believe it or not. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, no, I'd seen the other ones, but not this one. And I was kind of amazed when the movie started. It's like, oh yeah, this is our leading man. Like, <laughs> it's not like, not even a Danny Kaye. Yeah. Tom Ewell. Okay, yeah. sure. Um. Anyway, there's a love story. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> uh, well, maybe not this love story, but maybe you can take it as uh, a satire of some kind if you will i mean in uh the one that he made after this that we talked about will success spoil rock hunter it's actually about someone in a relationship not being broken apart and just staying together at the end which almost seems commentary on this one now this was kind of the peak era for him (laughs) he made a lot of movies after this though he did make a lot of movies there's also artisan models the martin and lewis movie from 54 or 55 thereabouts sort of in the same era which is i think commonly almost universally regarded as the best martin and lewis movie it has a lot of that frank tashlin color and energy there's this wonderful dance scene in that movie where martin and lewis are singing and dancing about color and they're like splattering the scenery with paint it's a very dazzling section of the movie so i recommend that one as well. In the 60s, I think Tashlin gets sort of overtaken by Jerry Lewis a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, he's so focused on the Jerry Lewis movies that he doesn't really, I mean, I love some of those movies, but he doesn't really continue his development as a distinctive auteur. It's you know? a Peter Bogdanovich article where he visits a set of a Tashlin Lewis joint, and Tashlin is essentially shown as a babysitter of Lewis that has to keep him in check to get even the simplest scene done. Like, Jerry Lewis is hiding under tables, he's biting people. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> if that's yeah. the case. And then as the 60s go on, Tashlin's basically done by 1970. As the 60s go on, the movies get less and less. I mean, there was another Bob Hope one from later in that era, the private Navy of Sergeant <laughs> it's O'Farrell. It's me, Bob Hope! 
yeah. It, oh man, we should do an episode on old Bob Hope. I would love to. Yeah, yeah. Let's watch. Get some Dana Gould on. Tell a story of being on the Bob Hope comedy special. Yeah, that'd be great. But Frank Tashlin. He's a man of the 50s, ultimately. Mm-hmm. That's that's how you think about him. There was some energy in the air in the 1950s, this explosion of uh, television and advertising. He was this sort of, I, I'd say his appeal is that he was this sort of like proto Andy Warhol figure almost, which sounds a little ridiculous to say, but it's like Andy Warhol, how in his canvases, he has this purposely ambivalent relationship with mass culture and with kitsch culture, where it's like, does he love it? Is it? satire does it matter like maybe it's both things at once and Tashlin is interesting as a director because you can find some books that were written about him but he is not held up very high as a comedy director that much to the point that the film he directed after Son of Paleface has seemingly disappeared called Marry Me Again it stars Robert Cummings it has zero reviews on Letterboxd it seems to have been released on DVD somewhere but I don't believe it because I could not find a copy of it anywhere which is almost unbelievable for a film that came out in 1953. Well, challenge accepted. One last thing I'll say about Frank Tashlin. I remember in Andrew Saris's book, The American Cinema, the book where he wrote little capsule blurbs about all the important directors of the studio era. He said of Frank Tashlin, he was sort of ambivalent about Tashlin. He said, the, and I'm paraphrasing, the issue with Tashlin is that to satirize vulgarity is sometimes indistinguishable from vulgarity itself. And I think in Tashlin's best movies, the response to that would be, so what? Yeah, like, it's fun. Yeah, like, come it's on, like, yes, yes, it's a satire of vulgarity, and it's vulgarity, and he finds the beauty and the poetry in vulgarity, and that's wonderful. On that note, I think people should check out more Frank Tashlin, which I feel they will now that it's got the Criterion stamp of approval. That's right. And The Girl Can't Help It was difficult to find for a long, long time. I remember when I saw it at the Royal, they were like, it's not even really available on DV anymore, but finally that's changed. So I look forward to the other, I don't know, 30 Bear Manor media and McFarlane books on Frank Dashlin <laughs> coming our way. Let's get Say One for Me starring Bing Crosby in a deluxe special edition release. I mean, you know that me and you would be there day one to buy that. Whoever owns the rights, sell it to Gold Ninja Video. <laughs> we'll put it out. So as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Ben and it goes, hello, Important Cinema Club. I want to thank you not only for the podcast, but also for the amazing night I just had at my repertory theater. They played a double feature of Thrilling Bloody Sword and the Takashi Miike musical The Happiness of Katakuris. That's a fun double bill. It was almost full and was an amazing night. My question is, how were we able to get Thrilling Bloody Sword into my rep theater? Well, I snuck in through the back door. So a little bit of context for people who are maybe listening to this podcast for the first time. All the Tashlin heads who are like, someone did an episode on Frank Tashlin. You never know. We've got listeners over the years because they searched a director's name and we were the only ones. (laughs) That's true. So Thrilling Bloody Sword is a Taiwanese martial arts extravaganza that Justin rescued from obscurity. He found the only available, perhaps the only surviving 35 millimeter print. Uh, Yeah, so I found it and I scanned it, released it on Blu-ray. And much to my surprise, it has become a cult film that people really enjoy it. And I think it's the title and it's the visuals. It's like instant like that, that you want to see it based on that. I mean, it's such a it's such a beautiful film. And all you have to do is show just a few scenes from it. Mm -hmm. It's, It's so it's crazy. It's wonderful. So I posted a clip from it after I got the scan back and I was like, wow, look at this. And from there, uh, Joseph Ziemba, who also runs Bleeding Skull, reached out and said, hey, can I uh, see Thrilling Bloody Sword? Maybe Agfa could rep it. And I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. And they watched it. They picked it up. And thanks to the head of programming, who 
who is deals with theatrical distribution there, Brett, he has been pushing it on theaters, being like, you got to play this movie. And it's been playing all over the place. People love it. I have not seen it theatrically yet with other people. Although it's it, coming it's up. It's going to, because when is it showing in Toronto? Oh, uh, let me check the date here. It's playing at the Fox Theater, which we listened to and uh, made a joke about, like, I think they listen to this. And they do. Okay, and, nice. And I will be introducing it there uh, and be selling some Gold Ninja Video stuff, perhaps even some Gold Ninja Video discs you can't buy on the website anymore. Wow. All right. Go meet Justin, folks. What day is it? Uh, it will be on May 5th at 7 p.m. at the Fox Theater. I like how the Facebook page is Thrilling Bloody Sword with intro by Justin McClue. You're, you're a star now, so Justin. The important cinema club heads, you know, they got to come out to uh, see the screening. I even know that the person who rescued it from the dumpster many, many years ago, Colin Geddes, will be there as well. Wow. So um, is there anything else in that letter? Was there a question? I can't remember. Yes. Uh, he just asked me how I did it. And I said, well, I did it by Ag for reaching out. <laughs> <laughs> doing all the heavy lifting for me. Hopefully they'll be carrying some other Gold Ninja video stuff, like maybe Skip Tracer, but that won't be through me. I said, do that through the director, because Gold Ninja video for that one just does the Blu-ray release. And uh, continuing on, he asks... Anyways, my filmmaker suggestion is Jules Dassin. Will, listen to yourself. Your letterbox review of Night in the City turns out is one of the best movies ever. Thanks for your oh, good podcast, Ben. Oh, Jules Dassin. Yeah. Uh, Jules what did I say? Dassin. You know why I said Jules Dassin? Because I know that he went to France and he directed most of the movies there. But he's American who just went there because he was blacklisted. I genuinely don't know how to pronounce his name, but that's it's right. It's definitely English. It's uh, not uh, French. Okay, well, he did direct Night in the City, which is a great noir. That you saw on Nitrate. I saw it on nitrate film oh it's so good but i never got a great sense of the rest of his filmography he has a lot of great movies most of them that he did in france as well no i would love to do that god night in the city we haven't done like a noir director in so long we should yeah i think anthony mann maybe was the last one that we did i don't think we did anthony mann we haven't done anthony mann we should (laughs) yeah we definitely should well thank you very much for that letter a lot to chew on there and check your local listings of thrilling bloody sword because it's playing all over the place i get updates of like it's playing here it's playing there get your theater to just book it they can do it through agfa and you'll get a DCP and watch it with a crowd. So our next letter is from Eric J. Now, I should say, when Will said last episode, he's like, send us your TV movie recommendations. I was like, oh my God, we're going to get so many emails. And we did. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I should stop doing like calls <laughs> yeah. for people to... No, know. that's how you get, um, you know, what is that? Uh, not interaction. Engagement. Engagement. That's what, you know, the social people say. So that's fine. Yeah. You know, you listen to the podcast where they're I like... called for it because I'm not going to watch these movies. <laughs> <laughs> like I always listen to the podcast where like, let us know in the comments what you think. It's like the people doing the podcast don't care. But that's what I'm going to do on my YouTube videos from now on because anyway, I care. Anyway, sorry. Thank you, everyone, for your suggestions. Actually, we did get some really good suggestions of like... What is the TV movie canon? I, I, I still don't feel I got like, this is the TV movie auteur. Like maybe Alan Clark. He did like scum and stuff like that. And he mm. worked mostly in the TV field. But I guess like if you get high enough, you forget their TV directors because you're like, oh, they're just, you know, feature film directors, it's right? It's the Steven Spielberg dual syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this letter is interesting because he, uh, the letter writer goes, you guys asked for TV movie recommendations. And I just want to remind you that some of the great films of all time were originally produced for television. Decalogue, Berlin, Alexander, Platts, Fanny and Alexander, Scenes from a Marriage, and Peter Watkins, Edward Munch, one of my personal favorites. That's a lot of writer. I have never seen that film. You don't have to delve into the interminable Is Twin Peaks a Movie letterbox debate to find some gems. Okay, 
that's all fair. He's right when he says all that. I will just say that I wasn't talking about scenes from a marriage. <laughs> I was talking about Return to Mayberry. Yes. I was talking about shit that is like undeniably a TV movie. <laughs> but the letter <laughs> writer... Maybe that's a self-defeating way to approach it. Actually talks about this. He goes, do you guys have any insight on why some of the greatest European auteurs are producing work for television when a clearer divide between the two media seem to exist in the American industry? Thanks again, Eric J. I will say that I'm not an expert on this, but the sense I get is there's a lot of government funds that go into television production, specifically in European countries. Yeah, I think they go wherever the money is. It's like in the current context where there are a lot of directors who are directing for Netflix because that's where the money is. Raul Ruiz basically made his bones doing TV projects, like going to country to country, to wherever he could get funds to do whatever oddball thing that he could do. And it wasn't always based on like, you know, box office or ratings. I feel that, you know, a lot of these auteurs, like, uh, isn't it Man on a Wire was also a TV project, the Fassbender film? Oh, World on a Wire. World on a Wire, yeah. yeah. yeah Not yeah. the classic. Uh, I was, you I know, was confused about the, doc, the documentary. Yeah. Or The Walk, the classic Robert Zemeckis film, which right. is a remake of it. Oh, man, we didn't mention that Frank Tashin directed a Three Stooges film. Oh, Snow he, White and the Three Stooges. Okay, he got fired from that early oh, on. Oh, and Walter Lang came and directed it. Okay, that's why we didn't discuss it before people sent us any letters. It's bad, by the way. And it is interesting the way that a lot of uh, auteurs ended up becoming TV guys in Europe. That never happens in America. If you are, you know, a TV director, after you directed a bunch of feature films it's because you need a steady income and that's pretty much it you probably have no artistic ambition every canadian director if they came up in the 90s have become tv directors and are trapped in that hell which i'm sure pays very well but i cannot see it being that artistically fulfilling because at a certain point as you know someone else said it's like directing traffic i once spoke to bruce mcdonald and i said do you have any advice for the young filmmakers i was interviewing him for some hack thing probably your university paper or something like that and he said you've got to do your own shit you've got to do your own shit it can't just be paycheck and he did like if you look at bruce mcdonald's filmography it'll be like my babysitter's a vampire and then it'll be like a very uh, personal thing and then he'll direct orphan black or something like that probably they all direct orphan black but yeah and then it's coming back then he'll do some black and white movie starring molly parker yep i I respect his career he's like one of the few guys who's been able to do it yeah it's very rare uh that other filmmakers in canada are able to do that and i think in europe there was never that kind of distinction that TV was known as like you shit you failed you're in television like Vittorio Cattafavi the famous auteur of the Port Cinema Club he became a very um, well-renowned TV director of like weird projects after he stopped making feature films well hey while we're talking about this I highly recommend Edgar G. Ulmer's pilot The Swiss Family Robinson do you highly recommend it yeah it's great it's beautiful it's got many beautiful images is it on YouTube I know it was included on an all day entertainment DVD at one point that's where I saw it it Mm -hmm. might not be on YouTube oh god if you're a listener, you're probably so lost at this point. All these references to Vittorio Cattafavi <laughs> and Edgar G. Omer. I hope people sit with like a pad of paper and they're like, what are they? What is that? <laughs> Someone wrote a recent iTunes review, which is like, I don't know what they're talking about, but I enjoy it. <laughs> so we appreciate it. It's like it. reading Ulysses. <laughs> you know, but... The way that you do it is like any comic book. You start at the beginning and you read all the way up to here. That's right. Uh, We should have a little voice that comes in. If you hit a button, it's like, uh, see issue number such and such for more information about this director. (laughs) So thank you again very much for your letter. If you have any questions or comment, you can send them at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com.
patreon.com. So on our Patreon this week, what are we talking about, Will? Well, we haven't recorded it yet, but but yeah, that Justin is making obscene sounds because I'm just sucking. Because we are talking about uh, a vampire film, and Justin's now doing obscene <laughs> gestures. We're talking about a fifty-dollar uh, video feed of us recording boards in my clothes. We're, yeah, we're we're talking about a well. Look, it's called Dracula Sucks. I like how you're trying to like qualify it. Wasn't it like one of the you know biggest productions in porn ever at the time of its release? Yeah, it definitely was. There was some thought that they did two different versions of it. They did one that was hardcore called Dracula Sucks. One that was softcore called Love. Love at first bite or lust at first bite. Not to be confused, because love at first bite is a classic Jim Carrey comedy, isn't it? That, no, that's once bitten. Love, <laughs> oh, lo, love at first bite is a George Hamilton Dracula <laughs> right. comedy. I'm getting my uh, Dracula comedies confused. So sorry, Dracula sucks and lust at first bite is mm. the softcore version. Anyway, Dracula sucks was it was like kind of supposed to be a crossover midnight hit. It wasn't, but it stars Jamie Gillis as Dracula. John Holmes is in it too, isn't he? He's Renfield, and there's a whole galaxy of your favorite porn stars are in it. And it's new on a 4K, 4K. <laughs> a new 4K Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray. Do you live in Toronto and you don't own this yet? Go to Bay Street Video because I'm the only one who bought a copy up till now. <laughs> don't have them stop buying pornography in the store. That'd be terrible. So we're going to talk about that, and uh, I'm eager to watch it. Me too. Have you ever seen it? Years ago, I saw it. Don't remember a frame of but now you're going to see it the way it was meant to be seen in glorious 4K. I'm sure it's really good. You're going to like throw a raincoat on and it'll be like you're sitting there when it came out. That's right. So if you want to listen to that episode, join at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and get our whole back catalog as well. What are we doing next week, Will? Well, the month of comedy continues. Yes, comedy months. And we are exploring another country. <gasps> First, we were in Japan. Then we were in the United States. <laughs> and now we are going to the third country that produces comedies. Oh, wait. Yep, there's only three, right? Uh, China, but more specifically Hong Kong. We are talking about Mr. And I can't believe we haven't talked about him yet. Oh my God. Uh, how, dedicated an episode to him yet. How have we not done an episode on Wong Jing? Wong Jing, the man who directed the best Jackie Chan film ever made, City Hunter, the one that Jackie Chan did dismisses in his own autobiography. Wong Jing is one of the most prolific, one of the most commercially successful... <laughs> Directors. We're putting big air quotes there. Certainly there are movies that he directed more than others. He directed nine films in like 1993, according to his IMDb. But a hugely prolific director has made so much money over the years, has made many, many popular films. He was the director of Stephen Chow and many of Stephen Chow's breakthrough films, has directed every Hong Kong star you can imagine, and he is... A schlockmeister. Oh, the schlockiest of schlockmeisters. And he is someone who is proudly a schlockmeister. He's proudly a commercial filmmaker. He's a man who, in his interviews, really gives off the vibe of somebody with no taste. And many of his films are horrible. Some of them are wonderful. How are we going to decide which films to watch? I'm leaving it up to you. I think you have a much better sense because there are so many, so many facets of that filmography. Well, he chased trends, right? Yeah. He, like whatever was popular, he would go and make a movie in that style. A Better Tomorrow comes out. Well, guess what? Wang Jing makes Return to a Better Tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, God of Gamblers. I know. That's the one I would go to, God of Gamblers. I think that one's interesting to talk about because it doesn't get talked about that much now, but it was like a big, you know, if you're getting into Hong Kong films, you have to watch it. And Samuel Jackson even wanted to remake it. But 
it's like, Samuel, did you watch the movie? Because there's a huge part of that film that people forget about, which yeah. is the main plot. He just saw the poster. <laughs> yeah. I've actually never seen God of Gamblers, you never seen though. God of Gamblers? Okay, so Charlie Pack gets hit on the head, and let's just say he goes full in the movie. <laughs> right, so that's why I haven't seen it. It's because... <laughs> you would have raised to see that <laughs> no i just it always just seemed like a movie that that's like yeah it was popular but it's probably not very good and i'm probably not gonna like it uh you will like it it's okay. very fun and i mean ugh, like do we talk future cops because <laughs> you've seen that one though so i have seen that I, i'm gonna recommend some i'm gonna go through the list maybe i need to reach out to dylan chung the hong kong cinema expert should we watch a bad one i mean if we wanted to watch a bad one we could just watch one that he just redid uh kung fu cult master he did it as a two-part it's bad though it's bad it's boring it's okay. like a mainland Chinese we, we, blockbuster we can already talk about the bad yeah. ones let's try to find some good ones let's mm. make the case for Wong Jing and we're talking about Wong Jing so that means everybody has to crack open their book of Planet Hong Kong which has the best chapter about Wong Jing in it it is so good so that's what we're doing next week until then I'm Justin LeClue I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening Well, we sometimes take this space on the podcast to pay tribute to favorites of ours who have passed away, and since we recorded the last episode, we've lost two legends. First, Jimmy Wang Yu. My god. The guy who was the biggest Hong Kong martial arts star before Bruce Lee. And here's a little secret, guys. He's got a better filmography than Bruce Lee. He does. Unquestionably better than Bruce Lee. Can we take a sidebar for a second and just talk about, like, Bruce Lee obsession? Because me and Will have become kind of, like, fascinated by this recently. Well, because we each read a magazine called Eastern Heroes. Which is a very famous magazine from the 90s that has a lot of articles and reviews. And it's been revived, and it's good. Mm. There's a lot in it that's wonderful. If I have a piece of friendly criticism about it, it's... No more Bruce Lee, please. (laughs) Yeah, like, everything about Bruce Lee has been explored I don't need more ad nauseum well because at this point they're just like there's an article in the one of the recent issues that's like exploring the history of forged Bruce Lee autographs and <laughs> it's like all I'm right sorry, this is so far removed from the thing I like yeah Bruce Lee <laughs> like we you know what I think we should put you know we uh, return him back to his grave <laughs> and we can never speak of Bruce Lee again for a while oh, let's raise Jimmy Wang Yu on a pedestal instead okay so Jimmy Wang Yu he starred in a movie called The One-Armed Swordsman from 1970 or so don't have the exact year in front of me but it was uh, like the first hong kong martial arts blockbuster of that era yeah it was the shaw brothers era yeah that's right and you know the one-armed swordsman's okay but the ones that he did after that like one-armed boxer i think is amazing well the chinese boxer the uh one that yeah the chinese boxer which that's, he directed that's a fucking great movie and that's a great movie and it's one of the first open-handed fight movies mm-hmm. as well that they weren't really doing that because they were doing wuxia pictures when people recommend uh the one-armed swordsman it's good but you're like you know it's a little bit slower because of the era it was made chang Chae's directing it he's finding his feet you watch the chinese boxer and it is like gritty it is almost sam fuller-esque in the way it's edited and shot and just so much going on Mm -hmm. just just a propulsive energy to it it's the same in a movie like beach of the war gods which he also made i mean enter the dragon's great but the man from hong kong is better oh the man from hong kong is so good so as far as sort of like crossover east meets west kung fu movies go i mean this was an australian Mm. hong kong co-production george lazenby's in it it's got crazy stunts even the director is getting in on the action like doing crazy stunts and fighting jimmy wang Yu in the film the scene where george lazenby has his like 
dinner jackets on fire and you can see it's him like it, pulling he actually it off got burned yeah. from it too just an amazing movie and then jimmy wang you got into problems with his employers the shaw brothers and he skipped town because he wanted to break his contract but he had some unbreakable contract so he fled to taiwan and he could only make movies in taiwan so he then made movies in Taiwan, some of the craziest movies ever made, like Master of the Flying Guillotine. Like Master of the Flying Guillotine, it was taking elements from a lot of different things that had been around. Like, you know, the guillotine had been done as a Shaw Brothers movie. But Jimmy Wang Yu synthesized it in such a way that like Street Fighter 2, that's all ripped off from Master of the Flying Guillotine, like the fighters in that video game. Now, I think the first time we ever heard of Jimmy Wang Yu, the first time many people hear about <laughs> Jimmy Wang Yu is that he helped Jackie Chan get out of a dispute with the tribe. Mm -hmm. He helped save Jackie Chan's life. And as a result, Jackie Chan had to repay the favor by being in two of Jimmy Wang Yu's movies. One of them, Fantasy Mission Force, we've talked about many times. Stone Cold Classic. We love it. One of my favorite movies ever, I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. I just love that movie. The other one, Island of Fire. Eh, that's all right. Hot. I that's mean, a, a film that has Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Andy Lau. <laughs> like, a lot, of people, yeah. a lot of people. Oh, favors to Jimmy Wang Yu. A lot of people who were helped out of disputes with the triads. Jimmy Wang Yu, uh, you know, complicated history, and he's passed away now, so we can just enjoy his movies. <laughs> that's right. Please don't tell me what a bad guy he was. We know. We, we know. know. Yeah. We know he was a bad guy. Great filmography. Now, moving on. Today, the day we're recording... Not it, a bad guy we're talking about. We found out... I mean, this is really awful that Gilbert Gottfried died. Gilbert Gottfried, this is somebody who, you know, of course, he's been like around for mm. my whole life. He's yeah, been... he's his voice, right? You recognize it instantly. And we weren't kids that grew up, I think, like a lot of people in America did on USA's Up All Night. We didn't get that channel. No, I never saw it. No. I mean, I, I watched Aladdin growing mm -hmm. up. Yeah. And, Love Iago. But so it was his podcast Ugh. that really. Oh, what a podcast that is. Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember listening to an episode and, and saying to Justin, like, you've got to listen to this. This 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 is the the real deal and i remember you well, no, saying wasn't like, it wasn't it, I was it the other you? way around i think i told one you it was us, a real deal one yeah. of us said and the other one was like the, the screechy voice guy yeah, i think it was you because i listened <laughs> to it and was it leonard malton or someone like that it was like maybe drew friedman was on and i was like you gotta listen to this will well gilbert gottfried is a monster kid he loved the universal what well, was a monster kid mm. he loved the universal horror movies growing up <laughs> he also loved caesar romero <laughs> and he would just have all these old timers people like adam west roger corman dick van dyke i don't know all those any octogenarian or nonagenarian star he had the little girl from ghost of frankenstein on the podcast and people like rick baker drew friedman there was a great episode last year where he had the historian david j skull and rick baker the oscar-winning makeup artist and they talked about frankenstein the 1931 frankenstein how it the 90th anniversary they just go on for two hours about it sharing all sorts of amazing behind the scenes tidbits talking about their own relationship with the movie it's heaven it's why the podcast cast medium was invented mm -hmm. i mean gilbert and his uh, you know the one who does all the work on the show frank santabadre <laughs> uh like the, what they get out of their hosts and their interests which no one else is talking about the guests they could get it is just amazing and it is genuinely crushing to see he passed away because i just listened to an episode a couple days ago that he put out i know he had a long-term illness apparently but he was still yeah i just had an episode a couple days ago and i'm 
I'm selfishly very sad that the podcast is over now, that we're not going to get any more of it. Me too. But if you want to know more about Gilbert Gottfried, there's actually a really good documentary about him. I think it's just called Gilbert. That's so right. I would highly recommend checking that out because it is a delight, especially to see how much of a calm and normal guy that he was. I mean, I never even listened to him. He was big on Howard Stern as well. Like that was one of his main yeah, gigs. I've but... been seeing those clips going around today. And, and I'm like, I don't know funny. them. It's all about the podcast for me and Iago. Did you ever see him on Norm MacDonald's podcast? <laughs> no. On, on that Oh man, D- treat yourself and look look up Gilbert Gottfried on Norm Macdonald Live. It's a two-part episode and it's one of the funniest things ever. Well, I mean, this is very sad, but if people haven't checked this stuff out, you got to go and do it now.